Uh, I'm glad you're here. I've got a lot to share with you. So if you need to go grab a quick cup of coffee, go grab it, because we're going to move kind of quickly this morning. Today is going to be our last uh, week on Protestant and the Reformation. And so some of the things we've talked about over, quite honestly, the last few months, I'm going to wrap together into one package, I hope, today. Now, this is a challenge, because normally a sermon, when I put one together, my notes are about three pages long. There's six today. So I'm telling you, if you need to grab some coffee, get it. But we will not go over for all who are in charge of the baby shower who are thinking, oh, no, we have a baby shower. You better not go over. I'm not going to go over. So that means you've got to listen quickly. Is everybody okay with that? Yeah? Okay. I've got a lot of history I'm going to give you today. Some of it I've already given you. If you're our guest and this is your first time with us, we're glad you're here. You can go back and listen to some of the podcasts. Um, typically, we don't teach in a way that you have to have been here the weeks before. However, it's helpful. But for today, we just don't have time for me to cover all of the events. However, what I want to do today is talk about uh, what this whole idea of Reformation is wrapped around, and that is that of Semper Reformanda. Uh, That's Latin that means always reforming. Now, we've looked at some very terrible elements um, in our history as the church that happened because the gospel and God's word was withheld from others. It was held only in the original languages or in Latin, and only the priests had access usually to the education to be able to read them. So an average person would never know what Scripture says, and so those in power, the priests, had the opportunity to tell you this is what God's Word says. Consequently, it always benefited the priests, did not always benefit those within the church. And so part of the Reformation, and much of the Reformation, actually, was about getting God's Word in a form that anyone can read it for themselves, and they can hear and know the truth of the gospel without having to have someone say, well, now trust me, this is what it says. So we're not going to get into all of that again today, but I want you to understand that is one of the primary benefits of the Reformation. Now, I have alluded several times now to where I believe the church began to go wrong, and I want to spend some time there today. And my purpose is not that we can just dive in and and name names and blame and, and all of that. My purpose is to recognize you and I live in a time that we cannot say all of the Reformation, all of the reforming that needs to happen is done. We cannot say that. Even the Reformers knew that as we would develop as the church, we would at times go wrong. And when we went wrong, we need to self-correct. And the tool in which we use to self-correct is always God's Word. Now, as I shared with you last week, it is crucial that as a follower of Jesus, you do not trust what anybody says or tells you about Christ. Instead, you have to go to God's Word and trust That is true. Now, I can spin it and change it and say it in a very entertaining way that you may believe me. And and we have many churches that do the gospel just that way. But you, if you are true to Scripture and you are true to following a heart that is sold out to Christ, you will never trust what anybody says. You will go to Scripture. If what someone tells you and teaches you and constantly is trying to convince you of, you find consistent with Scripture, then you may trust that person more. But you always have to go to that for yourself. I mentioned to you a quote from Phyllis Tickle, who was a a Christian historian and a, a professor who just died recently. She was actually quoting from Mark Dyer, but she incorporated it into this idea of this always reforming church. And I just love the way that she describes it as a rummage sale. She says this, The only way to understand what is currently happening to us as 21st century Christians in North America is first to understand that about every 500 years, the church feels compelled to hold a giant rummage sale. In other words, the empowered structures of institutionalized Christianity, whatever they may be at that time, become an intolerable carapace that must be shattered in order that the renewal and new growth may occur. In other words, every 500 years, if you look back through our history, about every 500 years, you have major change that happens within the church. And if we go by that generalized timeline, we're 2,000 years removed from all of the events of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. 
that puts us in a prime place for some major changes within the organized, organized institution of Christianity. So I want to say some things to you today, and I, I, want you to, I, want, I want you to know that I know right off the bat some of the things I'm going to tell you you're going to outright reject. You may even get mad at me. That's not my goal. I don't enjoy that. But I do want you to hear me out, and I do want you to listen to me. Now, for many, you, and you want, or many want, I want, to come to church, and I want it to be an encouraging experience where I just feel uplifted and encouraged. I want that for you as well. But as we look through much of Scripture, what Scripture tells us we will spend much of our time doing and as followers of Christ is that we will be testing what other teachers are telling us against His Word because many false teachers will come. And as those false teachers come, we have to be very diligent to stay true to what the gospel really is. Because if we are not, then those false teachers lead people astray. And so there's great practice and great effort and energy in staying true to what is true in Scripture. So as I share some of this, if I ruffle your feathers, stay with me. I hope to pull us all back together at the end. But until we get there, I just want to share some things. Unless you're a student of history, you probably aren't aware of. If you've been here for the last few months, then you may have heard some of this, but you won't. But I, I want to go into some new stuff as well. I shared a few weeks ago that I thought one of the problems that we have in the church, or many of the problems we have in the church, began with what many Christians hold as one of our most significant and best events that have happened since the resurrection of Christ. And that was when Constantine came on the scene. Now, it's my belief, it's not just my belief, it's many, many uh, people's belief that Constantine did not do the church a favor, but instead set the church on a course of corruption that would forever change the way the church did things. And what I'm going to share with you is I believe that the reformers began the process of bringing the church back. But you and I have a role to continue that process of bringing it back. Now, if we go back into the story, let me just give you a really quick summary of Constantine. I don't want to go deep into him because we have talked about him before. Constantine came onto the scene after Rome was fragmented into three different empires, three different sections of the empire. He only was the emperor of one. It was a time when Christians were being persecuted, and when you hear about the persecution of Christians, you often are told or you're studying about that time, the 10 years prior to Constantine coming on the scene and becoming one of three emperors of Rome. Now, he was embroiled in a battle to unite Rome into one nation again with only one emperor. Of course, he wanted to be that emperor. History tells us he would eventually conquer and overcome the other two areas of Rome, and he would be the overall emperor of Rome. Leading up to this point, here's what I want you to know, that some of the practices you and I hold as traditional historic Christian practices were brought to us from Constantine, and they come not from his time as a follower of Jesus, but they came of his time as a follower of the sun god, Apollos, and also known as Sol Invictus. Now, why is that important, and why am I telling you this? Because Constantine worshipped these gods before he came to know Christ. And he became the head of the church, the first head of state that became the head of the church in history. And he began a process of heads of state overseeing the church, which would eventually begin to turn in what we call the Dark Ages, where the church then became the head of of the state, something that Jesus himself would have said over and over, this is not my plan, this is not my kingdom, this is not what the church is, this is not what I want, but yet that is the direction that we went. Around 311, 312 A.D., let me follow my notes. I don't know if I'm following my notes, I'm going to make it hard on, on you all today. Constantine worshiped Sol Invictus, which was is translated the unconquerable sun, Apollo, who is the sun god, and Mithras, who was the Iranian god of righteousness. Those were the gods that he worshipped. 
And so as we look at his influence, we look at the influence of the worship of those gods in all the things that he did. Now, we had a significant event, and if you'll you'll remember our history, at the Battle of the Million Bridge, he was losing. And he had a vision of a cross, a blazing cross over the sky, and there was a Latin inscription under the cross that that said, basically, under this sign, you will conquer. And so he took all of their shields and took all of their elements and he painted crosses on all of them because he believed that what that meant was that if we have the symbol of the Christian God on our implements of war, we will be successful. And at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, he was, in fact, successful. Within the next year, Constantine would do something that many Christians heralded as a world-changing event to which we would agree was a good world-changing event, and that was that he legalized Christianity. You would no longer be exiled, imprisoned, or executed because you were a Christian under the rule of Constantine. We see that as a good thing, and that's the reason that Christianity overall sees Constantine as a very positive influence in the church because he kept Christians from being executed. I find that a very desirable outcome. But if we stop there, then we will miss many of the other influences that he had. As we look, look back at some of his conquests and we look back at some of the um, influences that happened after his supposed conversion, you would think that if Constantine truly loved Jesus, understood who God was, and began to follow in the path of truth as it is laid out in Scripture, many of the things and the decisions that he made would be uh, consistent with Scripture. When we look at his great arch, the Arch of Constantine, you would think this is one of the chronicles of all of the battles of Constantine as he became the sole emperor of Rome. And yet what we find on the arch of Constantine is not a single Christian symbol, but there are multiple pagan symbols in all of the glyphs and all of the statues that are part of this arch. Why are there no Christian symbols on this arch? Some would say, well, if you look at the history of the arch, It was built at different times, talking about the different conquests of Constantine. And it was built by people that were loyal to Constantine, but not Constantine himself. Which I would wonder if Constantine is the overall emperor and he has gone to great lengths to solidify the empire. Why did Constantine not oversee the building of his own arch? And why are there pagan symbols, notably Apollo, Mithras, and Sol Invictus, and none for Jesus. Why is that? Some of the traditions that you and I have and that we hold as, as true, and, and this is the way that the church is supposed to be, come from this period of time, 312 to 337 A.D., 1,200, 1,500, 1,800 years ago. And so as we look at this time, what we find is that we begin to have a number of councils organized by Constantine. And this is what a council was. You may be familiar, if you're a student of some kind of church history, you may be familiar with the Council of Nicaea. That was the first council that Constantine brought together. And he brought together all of the Christian bishops of the time. And whenever there was a disagreement about doctrine or theology, he would call a council, bring them together, and Constantine would preside over the council as they themselves began to determine the the fate and the direction the church would go from that point forward. There were a number of these councils that he held. And Constantine became what he would tell others was the head of Christianity in the modern world. Now, I'm telling you this, not because Constantine's a terrible guy. I think Constantine just didn't understand. I, thought, I don't think he knew how he's been influenced or what he was influencing. But I tell you this to say that there are people throughout our history that have changed the course of the church that had no business doing so. And Jesus never wanted them to change the direction of the church. Constantine is one of them. We look back through his history. I do think that at some point, Constantine does truly become a believer. 
And it appears that later in his life, this is the time when, near the time of his death, that he begins to change his actions. Throughout his reign, even as a Christian emperor, he builds temples to all kinds of other gods because it placates people. If you had a religion that you wanted to follow and he wanted you to be a satisfied citizen, he would build you a temple for your God. It was later in his life that he began to see the error of his ways and he began to tear down those temples. He began to change how he behaved. And it wasn't until he was on his deathbed that he was finally baptized into the Christian faith. I do believe Constantine came to a place of salvation and reconciliation of his faith with Christ, but it was not till the end of his life, and I believe the damage was already done. Some of the results of what he has done. Today, we are in church on what day? Sunday. It's for the, you know, sun, right? <laughs> Sunday. Do you know why we have church on Sunday? Some of you know, but you you just want me to say it. Some of you don't know. There was already a day at the time of Constantine that was celebrated as a day of rest. In fact, Constantine himself would dictate into law that the day of the sun, of the, the day that was set aside to worship the sun god, Apollo, should be set aside as the day of rest for all people. And he would include Christianity in his declaration. It was the beginning of our day of worship being on Sunday, which is why some traditions reject the idea of worship on Sunday. It all came from the worship of Sol Invictus. On March 7, 321, this is what he said. He said, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all workshops be closed. This was on the day of the worship of the God of the sun. This is where we get our Sunday being our day of rest and worship. This is where it comes from. The day of Christmas was celebrated on December 25th for the first time under the reign of Constantine. And interestingly enough, there's not a single biblical scholar that believes that Jesus was born in the winter. Because in the winter is not when you're out shepherding your flocks by night. You're in huddled around the fire, you know. There's not a single scholar that believes that that was the day he was born. And though different traditions have us celebrating the birth of Jesus at different times, though if we look at our first century scholars and historians, they will say the early Christians never celebrated the birth of Christ. They celebrated his death, burial, and resurrection because that is what brought salvation to humanity. They did not celebrate the birth of Christ. That's something that was issued in earlier. Interestingly enough, the Mithraean tradition, the the worship of the Mithraean god, Mithras, always occurred on the celebration of what was reported to be Mithras' birth, which was, can you guess what date? December 25th. Now, does that mean you need to stop celebrating Christmas and stop thinking about baby Jesus on December 25th? Absolutely not. And what I'm telling you is not that, hey, we're going to start holding worship on Thursdays now because Sundays is a pagan day to hold worship. There are some of these things that really, in the end of the day, don't matter for the way that we know, love, and follow Jesus. However, we need to understand where some of these things came from because it also gives us a picture of other decisions they made that pushed Christianity in a different direction than Jesus intended. So we'll still have Christmas on December 25th. We will still have presents under the tree, which was a Mithraean tradition to give gifts at this time. Now, let me back up. I get so excited. So, (laughs) incidentally is the word I was looking for. Incidentally, there happened to be a saint who was touched by God, believed in the gospel, and wanted to live it out in every part of his life that we conveniently were able to insert into the story at this time to make it a Christian holiday. Do you know who that saint was? St. Nicholas was born a few years before Constantine took power, 
His parents, who were wealthy, died when he was young. He inherited a great fortune. He was touched by the gospel and so gripped by the belief that he needed to follow Christ with everything in the way that Scripture declared to him that he took all of his inheritance and he chose to give it all away, primarily giving it to children who were in need. Now, Word of St. Nicholas spread throughout the kingdom. And this, is, again, was before Constantine made it legal to be a Christian. And so what happened was St. Nicholas was arrested and put in prison, not to be released until after Constantine made it legal to be a Christian. But his fame and his generosity had already spread far and wide. And at the same time that these traditions merged, it was easy to insert St. Nicholas and say, this is where we get our tradition of gift giving. Now, is gift giving wrong? I think gift giving's great. And if you want to know what I'm wanting for Christmas, come talk to me after. Again, some of the things that happen do not mean that we have to abandon them, but we need to understand them in the context in which they emerged and what impact they have had on us. I tell you these things about Constantine. Oh, one more. One more. In much of our early imagery, you will find images of saints and of Jesus with a halo, right? You ever wondered where the halo comes from? Because it's not in Scripture. We don't ever see that. I mean, we think that when we die, we're going to be big, chubby babies sitting on a cloud, floating around with a harp and a you know, bow and arrow and you know, shooting arrows at people, which would be kind of fun. I wouldn't mind shooting some arrows at some people. Some of you might want to shoot some arrows at me. I don't know. It would be kind of fun hiding behind clouds and stuff. Like a big heavenly laser tag or something. (laughs) So those are the images that we sometimes have of what it means to be holy. And, And the way artists began to draw about the time of Constantine were images of the saints and of Jesus with a halo. Except it wasn't a halo. It was a circular disc of light behind their head. Very similar to, guess what? A sun. Which... Before this time was the way Apollo was always fi- pictured in art, with the sun behind him. Go back one, one slide. This is Apollo. This is the traditional di- uh, artistry of Apollo before Christianity turned to this way of demonstrating the saints and Jesus, the apostles. The next one is Jesus with the sun behind his head, instituted at the time of Constantine. Now, if you have a picture of this in your house, are you a pagan? Yes. <laughs> no. No. No, no, no. No. But it begs the question, what other changes did Constantine make to the church that began to filter paganism into the practice of Christianity? Because as scholars began to look at the life of Constantine, what they found was that his life was less about following Jesus as it was about getting Christians to follow him. And he began the change of the church in that moment. Because before this moment, every person who would come to know Christ would come to a place of saying, I am now at odds with the governing authorities. They will likely seek my life for following Jesus. But Constantine changed that to where now the authorities were enforcing Christianity, not seeking the heads of those who would follow Christ. You and I still live with the consequences of this radical change within the church. All right, we're down one page got a few more to go. What began to happen when Constantine took power, when Constantine began to enforce Christianity, and he did enforce it, even to the point where historians tell us, if you were not yourself a Christian, he would often give you a position in his government, but would deny you any influence or power. If you were a Christian, it was illegal to convert from Christianity to some other religion. It was illegal to do that. That is not the gospel. That is not the role of the church. That is not the role of heads of state. 
But what it gave us was with the idea of the supremacy of a nation under God. And when we say our nation is under God, now the supremacy of our nation dictates the glory of the God we worship. Now, I want you to follow me. This is where I might lose some of you. One of the things I struggle with, I've always struggled with as a pastor, are, are, are patriotism and faith. I've always struggled with that. Because I love my nation and I love the people that fight for our nation. But my allegiance is not to my nation, it's to my God. And so throughout my time as a pastor, we've always had this tension with certain people that believe that every patriotic holiday, the church ought to be decked out in red, white, and blue, and we ought to parade the flag up and do all that. Well, I do believe there's a time and a place for that, and we should, as good citizens, not only pay our taxes and protect our nation from foreign invaders, we should have a level of patriotism for that nation in which we live and provide and provides us shelter and safety. However, when we come into church, why is it that we feel the need to worship our patriotism instead of our God in that moment? Because that's what we do. Why is it that in our nation, evangelical patriotism and nationalism has come to fevered levels that we will overlook great unrepented sin in our politicians' lives and still defend them? Let me read you something from Newsweek. And I, I, I don't know what... Uh, I don't know if Roy Moore is guilty or not. It's not my place to say whether he's guilty or not. But let me tell you what has happened in the wake of all of these accusations of his with evangelical Christians in his own district. It says nearly 40% of evangelical Christians in Alabama say they're now more likely to vote for Roy Moore after multiple allegations that he molested children, even as voters across the historically red state now seem to be punishing Moore for his past actions a new poll shows a plurality of evangelicals, 37% describe themselves as more likely to support more because of recent sexual assault allegations levied against him, while only 28% were less likely to do so. 34% of the supposedly devout Christians said that the allegations reported last week in the Washington Post made no difference in their support for more. Now, we're not voting for Judge Roy Moore here, and it's not our place to try him. And I do think that there's a lot of questions about some of the allegations against him. It needs to go to an investigation, and they need to get to the bottom of all of this. But there is something disturbing about evangelicals saying, I'm more likely to vote for a guy who now has allegations of child sexual abuse. There's a problem there. Jesus would never have said, you know what, the ends justify the means. But we get there, and we don't get there because we're bad Christians. We get there because we have bought into the idea that our faith and our nationalism can somehow coexist. And they cannot. They cannot. That's why Jesus said before Pontius Pilate and Herod, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, you couldn't hold me. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so he submitted himself and was killed. We're going to get back to that in a minute because that's where I want to go because I know this is more feel-good stuff. But you've got to understand where we've come as a church if we're going to understand where we're going to go as the church from here. So this idea that our nationalism and our faith can be combined into one place moves us to the point where once we have decided our political stance that glorifies God, we will ignore all morality or lack thereof in order to get our political agendas passed because we believe somehow that if I can get my political agenda passed, then somehow God is honored and glorified. And if i got to put a guy in there who's absolutely morally bankrupt in order to get that agenda to glorify God, God will be praised. We get that because we mixed the head of state with the church, and that was never what Jesus wanted. This is one of the reasons I believe we fight to maintain the superiority of our nation or our God. I think that's one of the reasons that Christians are so eager to go to war is we feel that we are a nation that has been blessed by God and we must therefore demonstrate the supremacy of God 
by being a supreme government in the world. Because if God's going to bless a nation, that ought to be the most powerful, best nation in the world. But that's not really how Jesus described his kingdom. Instead, he said, my kingdom are for the outcast, or for the oppressed, or for the captive, for the abused, or for the person who's given up on their life, who's willing to give up their life so they can find it. Now, if you're a patriot, do not in any way intend or mean to demean your faith. I do ask you to question why do they often hold equal place of value. For our servicemen and women, I do not deny your service as a wonderful gift to our nation and to the people of our nation. It is an incredible gift that is given that I believe God looks down and looks at the sacrifice of people. But oftentimes those who serve follow the directions of those who have agendas outside of what we sometimes think they are. Now, that's where I'm going to stop with that. Because we could go in many different directions depending on your political leaning, on what that looks like. That's not my purpose. It's not my place. And I'm not a political analyst. But I do analyze how has the church changed from what I read in Scripture. Because remember, the Reformation was not so much about political upheaval as much as it was about get God's Word, get the truth in the hands of people so they can know it for themselves. Because once you do that and the Holy Spirit begins to work within you to reveal His truth, then you will experience a changed life. That was what the Reformation was about. But what I believe is that Constantine's actions began a penetrating corruption within the church by combining elements of Christianity and paganism into one nationalized religion and called it Christianity. That's what Constantine did. Now, you may be thinking, why are you spending so much time? Isn't this about the Reformation? The Reformation didn't help happen for another 1,200 years. Why are we talking about this? I'm talking to you about this because this is what the Reformation, what the Reformers were trying to reverse. The Reformation began to undo the damage from Constantine's integration and national power and paganism mixed with faith in Christ. They began to see that that head of state mentality, the political power and control mixed with someone's faith was being abused. And we've already looked at many of those. I don't, I'm not going to go through those again. Many people who were faithfully trying to follow what Scripture told were killed because of their faith by the church. That's why we call them the dark ages. The truth was gone. No one had access to the truth but the priests. We looked at Menno Simons, who said, I was a priest for two years. I didn't ever read Scripture because I was afraid it would mess up all the things I believed because the church had told him what to believe. But once he opened it, he helped to stir a massive revival in pursuit of the truth. As I said, later in life, Constantine, I don't want to throw all this on him, and he's some kind of demon or antichrist. Later in life, he did move towards true True, Christian, uh, true, true Christianity, I believe. He started tearing down the pagan temples. He was baptized, and he began talking more freely about his faith. But it was the Reformation that began to undo this. Remember, one of the things that he did was he began to make foundational the theology and doctrine of the church by calling together councils of bishops, and he would preside over them at a time when all of the coins of Constantine still had the god Apollo on the back of them. He was overseeing the institution of the doctrine of the church. This is Martin Luther directly addressed this. He said, Since your majesty and your this was at the Diet of Worms, since your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns or teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, I do not believe in the authority of either popes or councils. He's talking about Constantine. And then the councils that would follow after. I do not believe in popes or councils by themselves, for it is plain that they have often erred and contradicted each other. In those scriptures that I have presented, for my conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. Reformation saw that There had been a massive shift in the way the church was operating, not as a community of 
of equal people that all had a gift to give and to serve each other and to go out and share the gospel. But instead, now we have power, real power, which is where the Crusades came from. Because once you mix nationalism with faith, every nation eventually begins thinking about getting more land and conquest. Our nation was one of the last conquests of land in the world with a religious mandate that we call the Manifest Destiny. God's Word in our own language and a renewal in biblical study began to return the faith to those who truly sought Christ. Semper Reformanda, always reforming. We are always in need of this same reform. God's Word in our own language and a renewal in biblical study. What began to happen as a result of this is that the gospel became the center of faith again, not the governing, government or governing powers. So the gospel begins to take hold in the hearts of people, and we begin to see people's lives change and people saying, this is not right. The gospel returns to the act of repentance, of acceptance, of justification in which we are forgiven for our sins, and the process of sanctification, which means we grow in our knowledge and practice and our faith in Christ. We, we get better at it. We trust Him more. We're willing to sacrifice more. We're willing to go places we wouldn't have gone for, um, before. I, we're, re, we're really changing. We're becoming that new creation that He talks about. And even today, as was then, there has always been and will always be a great temptation to adjust the gospel. There's always great temptation to adjust the gospel. We come up with different conditions to prove that you're a Christian. Some traditions believe until you speak in tongues, you're not truly a Christian. Others believe until you're baptized, and not just baptized, but baptized a certain way, then you're not truly a Christian. There are some traditions that believe that even after you die, you can be prayed into faith, even after you breathed your last. Some believe that only certain sects, we call them denominations, but only certain sects are actually going to be in heaven and know God. We've created conditions that you and I still, some of us came through those traditions that somebody told us what we're supposed to believe in order to be the right ones. And yet the gospel has told us everything that we need to know. We've also woven idolatry into the gospel. There is no more idolatrous gospel in the world today than the prosperity gospel that says, if you have enough faith, God will make you wealthy. And for this, the church will be judged, that we have allowed this type of terrible idolatry to come into the church and into the presentation of the gospel. We have missionaries taking this out to among the, of the poorest in the world, which quite interestingly... If you go to any secular group trying to quantify quality of life, some of the happiest people in the world are some of the poorest people in the world. It's so interesting, and yet much of our gospel has to do with, well, if you love God, He's going to make you wealthy. And yet some of the most miserable people in the world are some of the wealthiest people in the world. And yet we export the prosperity gospel all over the place, telling them, if you'll have enough faith then, hey, maybe you won't have a huge bank account. Maybe you won't drive a Lamborghini. I mean, the Pope's got a Lamborghini now. Praise the Lord, God, amen. We can go drive his Lamborghini. But, see, the prosperity gospel works in lots of different ways. If you'll have faith, your kids will not get sick. If you just have faith, you'll be able, none of your, your farm animals will die of disease. They'll all be there. They'll prosper. If you have faith, you will not have a dry season. If there is a dry season, your crops will still grow. And the problem is that kids died and crops died and, and their livestock died. And then they look and say, the gospel's not real. But in America, we don't need that stuff. We go to the store and we get what we need. And so our prosperity gospel said, my bank account will be bigger. My car will be better. My house will be bigger. And yet we read things like, Those who die find life. 
What? I want to die? You know, it's amazing how we will weave idolatry in. Some of us have come from traditions where idolatry was more about what we wore, how we looked. And if you came into a church, you had to be the perfect picture of a follower of Jesus. And some of us know we're not really good, all that great examples of Jesus sometimes. And yet the church is for them too. And so as we look at these things, the church still struggles with this. Some churches will even go so far as to say, well, Jesus is a way, but not the way. But Jesus never said that. He said, I'm the only way. And anytime the church says, well, he's a way, but your other ways will work too. That's idolatry. Some of the required traditions in churches are idolatry. Do the same thing every week. Now, we do that here too. One song, (laughs) announcements and a welcome. Two songs and a sermon. It goes way too long. And then a song and an offering and we go. I mean, sometimes we mix it up. Sometimes we do. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes we let the glory of Jesus shine in, but, you know, no, I'm just kidding. It's not really what I mean. What I mean by these forced traditions are the ones that you have to do, and you can only worship God in one certain way. We sometimes use music that way. We say you must worship through only one kind of music. We should only use one version of Scripture, which I always thought was funny because I did grow up in the time where, like, the King James Version, there were lots of people, and still some do. Some people still believe that the only true version is the King James Version, which I always thought was interesting because if we really wanted to be purist, we would say, well, you have to only read the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Somehow the King James Version has, is on par with those. And even the King James Version was not a translation anyway. That's a whole other sermon. We've talked about that before. I'm going to get into other stuff find it fascinating some of the things that we hold up as idols for ourselves when jesus says i am the way the truth and the life just come to me and anytime the church says no 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 don't go to him come to us we'll show you how to get to him that we have taken the gospel and adjusted it and that happens still today simple reformanda always reforming why don't we talk about this stuff in the church? Because Mark's a lunatic up there. He keeps hammering this stuff. I, we don't talk about it because this is not what people want to hear. We want to hear everything's good, everything's great, everything's perfect. Don't change anything. You know what? Go live your life. Jesus is happy no matter what you do. But that's not what Scripture says. And so what we are dedicated here is not that we're always going to say what everybody wants to hear, but we're always going to say what we believe is true. And that means you and I are going to have to invest ourselves in our faith to a greater degree than most people are willing to invest anymore. All right, I'm on page page three now. I got to go through this really quickly because there's something I want you to see that, um, quite honestly, I didn't see uh, for a long time. And I want you to see it too. Um, of these great temptations to adjust the gospel, Constantine was not the first. The Jews did it long before Constantine. In fact, Jesus was killed because he called out the Jewish priests for this very same stuff. This is why Jesus was ultimately crucified. And I want you to see that. But before I can do that, you need to see the, you need to see the environment. I've shared this with you before, so again, I'm not going to go deep into detail. But just a quick history of the temple, which was the center of Jewish tradition and practice for their faith. It was, you know, that's where God literally lived in the Holy of Holies. If you want to know where God was, it was there. He was, he was there. And as we look through history, we find that the temple was destroyed more than once. But eventually a guy by the name of Pompey came in and decided that Jerusalem would benefit Rome very much. And so in 63 B.C., approximately 60 years before the birth of Jesus, Pompey marched into Jerusalem and took the city and made it a part of Rome. The story of Pompey is so interesting because he was the priest would not stop worshiping. This was prior to Roman uh, influence taking over the, the temple. This was still Jewish priests 
trying to follow the true Levitical Deuteronomical code, were truly trying to worship and honor God. And they knew from their history that God could rescue them from all invaders or he could give them away to the invaders. It could go either way. And so they were trying to show their devotion and love to God. And Pompeii was so amazed by their heartfelt worship that within the temple, you see there was an outer wall of the city and then there was a wall around the temple. They had breached the outer wall and as they were breaching the inner wall into the temple, Pompey was so taken back the fact that the priest never once stopped their sacrifices or their prayers that he, as he walked in, he, had to, he walked straight into the Holy of Holies and he had to see this God that would garner so much devotion that they would, at risk of their lives, continue to worship him. And Pompey is, is, is said to have said that Pompey looked and was amazed that there was no image of a God in that room. They were crying out to God to rescue them. He was so amazed by that. But in that moment, Rome now controlled Jerusalem. And if you go back and you do a study of the high priests at this time, Rome began appointing the high priest 60 years before the birth of Jesus who would influence the practice of faith in Jerusalem. And the temple no longer was the temple it was before from that moment on. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because about 23 years later, a guy by the name of Herod the Great becomes king of the Jews. You read about him at the birth of Jesus. He's crazy. (laughs) Kills anybody that seems to have a claim. Killed his own family to make sure nobody could have a claim to his power would try to kill him. The thing is, when you start killing people to retain power, you start getting real paranoid somebody else is going to try to kill you. And he was. But he was a narcissist like no other. And so he began to rebuild the temple because he saw that it was the center of all life for the Jews. And so he rebuilt it, and there was a great outcry by the people. And so he said, okay, I will build a new temple over the old temple that will be even better than the one that you had before. Not only that, he expanded it to where it was over twice as big as the original temple. In 19 B.C., he's when he began heavily taxing the Jews, and he forced them to build it. It was so impressive with this white marble and its gold inlay and everything that it had that anytime someone would come in, they would just be amazed. They would just look at it. It was amazing. Jesus' disciples did that, and this is when Jesus said in Mark 13, and as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus was already beginning to say, This temple doesn't matter anymore. This is when we begin to see Jerusalem becoming not just the center of faith, but became a tourist destination. And as tourism grew, it were pilgrims that were coming in and they wanted to experience this faith. And so the priests put money changers out into the temple. And as priests put money changers out into the temple, they had to be there because there was no single currency in that region. Everybody had their own currency. The money changers were there. You came in with your currency, but if you were traveling to, to offer a sacrifice, you, had, you couldn't bring it with you. You just brought your money, whatever currency you had, to the temple. You'd go up to a money changer, hand them your coins. They would give you back what the temple traded in with a slight markup on any purchases of about 200%. And so this is where we come to the story of the money changers. I've got to go through this quick because I don't think I need to spend a lot of time here. But I want you to see something. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple happens in all four Gospels, and yet one of the Gospels is very different than the other two, other three, excuse me, (laughs) can't count. Here's how they read. In Matthew, it says in verse 21, or chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Remember that. In Mark 11, 
Mark describes it like this. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything in through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Very similar to what he said. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished by his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Luke describes it like this, Luke 19, 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Sounds familiar, right? Consistent story. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Come to John. Listen to John. John says, The pastor of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. Not in any of the other Gospels. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And behold, and, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It's not what he said in the other three Gospels. It's different. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these great things? And Jesus answered them, listen to this, destroy the temple. Now, let me stop here. Temple at this point. It is a building. God is still supposedly in the Holy of Holies. We'll talk about this in our next series. This is going to be great. You're gonna, this is just amazing what God did at this period right after the resurrection of Jesus. I've got some more. I'm not gonna do that. I want to, but I'm not going to because I don't have time. All right. So it's a building. God is still in the Holy of Holies, but it has become the center of Rome-controlled spiritual experience. It has become what Constantine would do to Christianity in 313 to 337 A.D. It is the exact same thing. Rome is in control of the temple. Which is when Jesus begins talking about destroying the temple. So we just need to go burn all the government buildings. No, I'm just don't say that. <laughs> Take that out of the uh, recording. Uh, if you never see me again. <clears throat> Destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said it was taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, three primary differences in John's account from the other. Stay with me. We're getting ready to go eat some chili or soup or something out there. Stay with me. This is important. Differences in John's account. Number one, the only account that mentions Jesus fashioning a whip does not mention that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Now, I would think Luke could get some details different because if you remember, the gospel by Luke was by accounts he had interviewed people. He wasn't actually there. But the others, they were there. So Matthew and Mark at least ought to be pretty close, but you would think John would know what was going on too. The only account that mentions Jesus fashioning a whip, the second one, Jesus is quoted differently in John. All the other three gospels are identical. And number three, John places this event at the beginning of his ministry, right after his first miracle at the wedding at Cana, where he turns water into wine. But all the other three Gospels place this event right at the end of his ministry, and he is about to be arrested and tried and crucified, all who would say happened because of his last event overturning the tables of the priests. Why? Because Jesus was challenging the government-controlled temple who were abusing those who just simply wanted to seek God. Now, there are multiple things happening here. The temple would also be destroyed because it was symbolic that the law was incapable as a perfect substitute for salvation. Jesus' death on the cross was required for that. So certainly, 
doctrinally, the temple being destroyed was not just about political power. It was also about the fact that, that we would never truly be healed through the law. We could never truly be perfected through it, but we could through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that is absolutely one of the reasons, but I believe there's another reason. And as I read through these, sometimes we read through these accounts and we say, you know what? It was a little bit different because they just had a little different perspective. But if you go back and you read in the Old Testament, what you will find is that what Jesus may have been doing, if these were two separate events, he was calling out corruption, semper reformanda, always reforming. I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to read it quick. Leviticus chapter 14, laws for cleansing houses is how it's described in my version. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house, which you'll see as you read through this, leprous disease also is talking about mildew and also pertains to just corruption in general. When you come into a house that is corrupt, for whatever reason, for disease, for mildew, for whatever reason. When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house, in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest. Remember that. There seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. And the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in and see the house, and he shall examine the disease. And the disease is if the disease is in the walls. This is how we know this is not just talking about leprosy, because, you know, your house can't get leprosy like a person can. So it's talking about multiple types of disease and corruption. Uh, and the disease in the walls of the house with green. Somebody's calling me. Is in the house with um, greenish or reddish spots. And if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. If the disease has spread in the walls of the house, the priest shall command that they take the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. The house is corrupt. It still has disease. Tear out the disease and take it out of the city. If the disease is spread in the walls of the house, the priest shall command they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around and the plaster that they scrape off shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. But, verse 43, if the disease breaks out again in the house after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, if a persistent leprous disease or if a persistent corruption in the house, it is unclean and he shall break down the house. It's stones and timber and all the plaster to the house and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Now, why am I telling you about mildew and leprosy? Because that's exciting to talk about right before we eat. <laughs> Let's look what happens here. If there's corruption in the house. Get the priest. Who is the priest for us? It's Jesus. He says, I am the great high priest. No one needs to go any other way except through me. I'm the way. You go to the priest. The priest goes and he examines. And if he finds corruption, he tears it out. And then when he comes back, they rebuild what they have torn out. And if it comes back, the corruption remains, then the house is absolutely destroyed, never to be a house again. If we do understand these stories of him overturning the, the money changers' tables as two separate events, what we find is a priest walking in and assessing the damage and tearing out the corruption that he sees. And when the corruption returns, he returns to say, this temple will be destroyed. Jesus has always been a political and a supernatural savior. Semper reformanda, always reforming. 
The temple priests were corrupt from their association and compromised with pagan Rome. They only kept their jobs by being loyal to Rome. They also got wealthy that way. The reformers were inspired by God's word. I got to disconnect this tablet from my phone. The reformers were inspired by God's word to fight the corruption of the faith that endured and spread for over a thousand years so that the true gospel could be experienced. Their call to reform is our call to semper reformanda, always reforming. I tell you this, and some of you, I may have lost you a long time ago. I hope I didn't. I don't say this to say we have a terrible nation or that somehow we are all just as corrupt as they were back then because I don't believe that is the case. But I do believe that you and I have to be vigilant to be watching to make sure that the truth is always proclaimed. Always proclaimed. That always comes by our knowledge of Scripture. We cannot know truth if we do not know Scripture. So my call to you is that as I share these things with you, what I hope you'll see is that how easy it is for a people to allow their faith to be moved just a little bit. And over time, once you have moved away from what is true, how corrupt it becomes in a very short amount of time. Which I hope what that does is tell us we have to be diligent for us to know what God wants for and from us. But we also need to know that truth. I believe God is calling us all to constantly be reforming. You and I. Constantly be looking for where truth is being adjusted just a little bit. But it changes so much. I want to suggest to you that you are a reformer. You are a reformer when you center your life around Jesus and his word, not just around occasional church attendance. When you center your whole life around Jesus and his word, you are reforming. You are reforming when you seek to live out the gospel in every moment of your life. Historical Christians have believed that every moment was a moment for God to live through them, not just a few moments here and there. Every moment was a moment for God to live through them. You are reforming when you love your enemies. That is not, good gracious. You are reforming when you love your enemies, not getting even with them. You are reforming when you forgive without needing an apology. Because Jesus said, forgive. How many times? As many times as necessary. You are reforming when you don't believe anything anyone tells you about Scripture until you see it for yourself. You are a reformer when you do that. You are a reformer when you're alert for false teaching and you call it out because you recognize that that false teaching could lead a person away from Christ. It can be close and still be completely wrong. You are reforming. When you are quick to forgive, quick to repent, and slow to cast judgment. You are reforming when Jesus is your hope instead of politicians or celebrities or for us in our nation, the pursuit of happiness. I've told you before, I don't know how you can live life without experiencing God's word every day in it. I, I don't know how you can do it. I know I've tried and, and it doesn't work. I know I've shared a lot of stuff with you, and you may never have heard of it. You may have. You may be a student of history, and if you are, you have a leg up on the rest of us. I've heard people say that it's easy when you're a pastor to study God's Word because that's what you're paid to do. I've heard that, you know, if I had been able to go to seminary, maybe I could know that stuff and I could be certain as well. I just, I didn't. I didn't have that opportunity. But I can tell you I'm a pastor and I've been to seminary. And there are very few things that I gained at seminary that have benefited me in my study of Scripture. There's no better motivation or tool to study the Bible than a love of Scripture and a heart that is curious about what God wants to say to you, how God has worked in the world, and how He wants to work in you from now till eternity. There is no better study tool. There's no software. There is no book. There is no teacher that will overcome a heart that says, God, give me your truth. Show it to me and let me live it every single day. 
So this is what I'll leave you with. I know I'm a little riled up today. Here's what I want to leave you with. We are always reforming when we are seekers of the truth and are committed to living out the gospel in our lives. I want to invite you to be a reformer with me. It means we've got to dive into God's Word. It means we've got to, we've got to learn it. We've got to memorize it. It means we've got to wrap our, our lives around it. When we read something and it says we're supposed to live a certain way and we know we're not, we've got to change the way we live. It means we've got to talk to people about it. It means we've got to love people, but we've also got to share truth with people. It means we can't give our hope and our future into the lives of politicians. Let's be honest. If you know a single person who has ever been banned from a mall for hitting on young girls, let me know if you know anybody like that. If a politician is kicked out from a mall and we are more likely to vote for them as evangelicals, perhaps we need to go back and look at the character of Christ. And if you're thinking, Mark must be a Democrat, I actually vote Democrat very seldom. But I got to tell you, we got to pursue truth. We got to pursue truth. In all that we do, I see in the lives of many of you that you are reformers. I see your love of God's word. I see your love of other people. I see your personality that contradicts the natural personality that you were given at birth. I see the Holy Spirit acting and working in you, using your gifts, sacrificing for the benefit of others, willing to demonstrate your own faults. I, I think it's amazing that we try so hard not to admit our faults, and yet it is when we admit our weaknesses that we experience the strength of the Holy Spirit within us. I see that in so many, and I pray that that would be for all of us the pursuit of our lives. So as I close, I am thankful for the Reformers I am thankful for those who have protected the gospel. I'm thankful for the opportunity to study it in English and the fact that it's in over a thousand languages now around the world. I'm thankful that the corruption that was seen has been purged. I'm thankful that the Catholic Church today, while I still have issues with some of the ways they do things, they are not the Catholic Church of the 1500s. They are not the same church. So to look at all the terrible things they did and to cast it upon those who practice Catholicism today is absolutely wrong. But I pray that we will constantly stay attuned to the truth and that we will live it out in our lives so that others will see it and will be changed by it. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for the lives of these men and women that were willing to go to their deaths in order for the truth to be declared to the world. Father, I pray that you would help us to see why we do what we do today. We don't just blindly accept it. Pray that you would not just allow us to listen to what somebody says and accept it as truth into our lives unless we see it in your word. And I pray that we would today continue to be reformers when we recognize that our allegiance must solely be to you. Your kingdom is not of this world. And if we change the gospel, we deny the ability for many to know it for themselves. Let us stay true. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have given us as a deposit as as a teacher for us, to to enlighten for us what your word means and how we can apply it and we can learn these truths for ourselves. And we don't need scholars and historians that you have given us all we need to have a life-changing experience with you. Let's experience that here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.